picture yourself drifting in the middle of a wide, deep lake. You can't swim to shore, at least not without exhausting yourself. The best you can do is tread water for as long as you can. For me, that's what grief can feel like. You're surrounded by something cold, vast, and endless that threatens to swallow you up if you let your guard down, even for a moment. Escaping is out of the question, so you focus all your energy on keeping your head above water. Now imagine there's a piece of driftwood floating a few feet away. It's not as sturdy as a life raft, but if you grab onto it, it'll help keep your mouth and nose above the waves. It's flimsy. It may even seem irrational. It's hope. Hope can't save you from the grief that comes from a loved one's disappearance. But if you're Christine Collins and your nine-year-old son Walter has been missing for five months, it may keep you alive until you're strong enough to swim. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like to introduce you to a nine-year-old boy who disappeared from his Los Angeles home in 1928. Then, after a bizarre twist in his case, he basically disappeared from his story too. His name is Walter Collins. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. No matter which way you slice it, the investigation into Walter Collins' disappearance is undeniably bizarre. It's the reason his story has been told so many times before. But the way I see it, you can look at his disappearance in one of two ways. As one of the most botched missing person investigations in human history, or a case study in the power of the human psyche. Walter Collins grows up in Los Angeles, California, during the Roaring Twenties, the era of prohibition, organized crime, and the rise of Hollywood. Walter's father, Walter Sr., gets convicted of robbery and sent to prison when Walter is just four years old. So his mother, Christine, essentially raises him as a single parent. She works full-time as a telephone operator while handling the cooking, cleaning, and home maintenance. 
The available research is thin, so there's only so much I know about Walter. It's certainly not enough to paint a comprehensive picture. But there are two details that stand out to me. First, in 1928, he's nine years old and still sucks his thumb, a habit most children grow out of by the time that they're three or four. So it could be a sign that he's under some form of stress. And second, a detail that will become important later. He calls Christine mother, not mom or mommy. This might sound a little cold to us today, but it's likely just a reflection of the time. Parenting in general looks different in the early 20th century. Kids are kind of treated like miniature adults. Chores like stoking furnaces, cooking, and cleaning start really young. By the time they're 14 years old, children are already starting full-time jobs and getting married. Meaning, they're expected to be contributing members of society before they even come of age. And as a result, they're granted a lot more freedom. For example, even in big cities, it's not that unusual for parents to let their children go off on their own, completely unsupervised. Which is why on Saturday, March 10th, 1928, Christine barely bats an eye when nine-year-old Walter asks for 10 cents to go see a movie at a nearby cinema alone. She gives him a dime. He leaves, and she puts her son out of her mind until night falls, and Walter doesn't come home. Panic doesn't set in immediately, but after a few tense hours, Christine knows something's wrong. She reports Walter missing to the police, and the LAPD waste no time launching a full-scale investigation. Statistically, minors are most likely to be taken by a parent or another family member. But as far as I know, Christine's the only person who knew about Walter's trip to the movies. So that just leaves a few possible options for what happened to him. He ran away, got really lost, or he was abducted by a stranger which would be the worst-case scenario. We now know that 40% of all stranger abductions end in the child's death, and the murder usually happens within two days. Even if the police didn't have access to that data at the time, they know that time is of the essence, because the city of Los Angeles had just seen a child abduction go horribly wrong. Three months earlier, in December 1927, a robber kidnapped a 12-year-old girl named Marion Parker and held her for ransom. After the story made national headlines, Marion's father paid her abductor, only to be sent her brutally mutilated corpse. The story's tragic ending kicked up some really bad press for law enforcement. So in an effort to avoid history repeating itself, they pour all the resources at their disposal into finding Walter. Their first stop is a lake in Lincoln Park, Los Angeles, about a half-hour walk from Walter's home. They received some tip that Walter might have taken a detour to the park and possibly drowned in the lake. But they don't find a body. They don't find anything. And before long, the mystery of Walter's disappearance starts selling papers. On April 6th, about four weeks after Walter's disappearance, the LA Times devotes almost a full page to the case. Now, children go missing every day, but something about the story piques people's interest. And soon, Walter's picture is distributed all across the country, 
as far away as Illinois. Meanwhile, officers in Los Angeles partner with departments in San Francisco and private eyes across the state. Their calls for information combined with the press coverage inspire countless tips, but they all prove to be dead ends. So without real answers, Christine speaks with her husband, who is still in prison, and they come up with a theory of their own. They suggest that one of Walter Sr.'s fellow inmates kidnapped their son out of spite. They don't say who or why, just that Walter Sr. could have angered someone. Beyond that, they don't say anything else, except that they're confident that whoever it was is not a murderer. If Walter was kidnapped, he's still alive. Now, to be clear, there's absolutely no evidence to support this theory. But for some unknown reason, Christine is convinced that she'll be receiving a ransom note for her unharmed son any day now. She even shares her theory with a reporter who publishes it in the LA Times. Even though the investigation continues to turn up nothing, Christine doesn't waver in her beliefs. She insists that her son is still alive. She clings to hope, but as the weeks turn into months, the odds of her son being found alive dip lower and lower. Until August 1928, five months after Walter's disappearance, Christine receives a phone call. The police have found Walter. As it turns out, he is alive. He was in fact kidnapped, but he escaped and he's ready to come home. It's August 1928, and a boy claiming to be Walter Collins turns himself into the police. Now, the boy's story is pretty muddled. According to one of his testimonies, he was kidnapped by a man posing as his father. The man took him all the way to DeKalb, Illinois before he was abandoned. The boy's story doesn't quite add up, but police don't seem to press him too hard. They chalk any and all confusion up to the months worth of trauma he experienced. After all, why stress the details? It's cause for celebration. After five months missing, Walter Collins is about to be reunited with his mother. Or at least that's what they think is about to happen. When Christine arrives to greet her son at a juvenile hall in Los Angeles a few days later, she takes one look at the boy and tells investigators they've made a mistake. It's not Walter. Obviously, this stuns and confuses everyone. They've already taken the boy's statement. He says he's Walter. He has no real reason to lie. Plus, he looks remarkably like the picture they've been sending out for months all across the country. They admit he looks a little different, sure, but it's been five months. Christine can't expect him to look exactly the same. His diet has probably changed. He could have had a growth spurt. So the police try to convince Christine that they're not the ones who are wrong. She is. They tell her she can't be thinking clearly. What with all the stress she's been under? And their persuasion actually works. Christine starts to warm up to the idea that it could be her son. Spoiler, it's not. 
Now, it's hard to believe that any mother would struggle to identify her child no matter how much time has passed, but put yourself in Christine's shoes for a second. You haven't seen your son in months. The child who is standing in the same room as you looks an awful lot like him. The police say he's your son. He says he's your son. There's no obvious reason for them to lie. And to top it all off, you desperately want them to be right. This moment should be a dream come true. It's what you've wanted for the past five months. All you have to do is set aside a few reservations. So that's exactly what Christine does. After the police tell her to try the boy out, which seems to be a direct quote, by the way, Christine says, okay. She succumbs to all the gaslighting. And depending on how you want to look at it, she either gives up fighting or she chooses hope. Before she leaves, Christine poses for a picture with the boy. The LA Times wants to feature the reunion in the Sunday morning edition, and the LAPD are thrilled about the coverage. In their eyes, this is a redemption for the bad press around Marion Parker's homicide. And while everyone else is patting themselves on the back, Christine is left to move a complete stranger into her home. Now, according to reports, a few officers ask the kid to give directions to the Collins' home, and apparently he leads them right to the correct door. Walter's dog also supposedly jumps on him and kisses his face. Now, this is admittedly weird and a little suspicious, but it doesn't change the fact that he's a stranger. A stranger who goes on to live with Christine for the next month. There's very little information about what happens during this time, but at the end of about four weeks, Christine can't lie to herself anymore. The boy isn't her son. He calls Christine Ma, not Mother. He's inches shorter than Walter. He's boisterous and rowdy, while Walter was quiet and withdrawn. But to really prove her point, Christine books a dental appointment. The dentist compares his records to Walter's old ones, and they don't match, which confirms they're two different people. Christine has to feel vindicated, but when she takes all this information back to the police, they accuse her of lying. Now, the police aren't doubling down for psychological reasons. They just don't want to be wrong. We see this all the time in cases like this. For the past decade or so, the Los Angeles Police Department has been plagued by scandals. Besides the Marion Parker debacle, it's practically an open secret that the LAPD accepts bribes from bootleggers and the mafia. Which is all to say, it would be embarrassing to admit another mistake, especially after all the press around Christine and Walter's reunion. But here's the most disgusting part. The LAPD doesn't just accuse Christine of lying. They say she's making everything up because she doesn't want the responsibilities of being a mother anymore. And when she tells them that that's not the case and refuses to back down, they have her committed to a mental health facility. At the time, this is something the police can actually do. They seem to have this policy that basically lets them commit anyone they want to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation, even if there's no sign of an underlying mental health condition. 
there's nothing Christine can do. Luckily, she doesn't let it break her. The entire time she's committed, Christine doesn't waver from her story. She tells anyone willing to lend an ear. Listen, she's not crazy. The kid isn't hers. She has no idea why everyone else is so adamant that he is. She especially doesn't know why the boy is lying. But that doesn't change the fact that he is. Soon after, Christine gets released after four days. She sues the police department. It takes years before she wins the case. But the lawsuit almost immediately becomes a turning point. Local papers finally start reporting Christine's side of the story, which backs the LAPD into a corner. They have to take another look at the boy. And after a little digging, they're forced to confront the truth. The kid they sent to stay with Christine isn't Walter Collins. He's a runaway named Arthur Hutchins. He lied about his identity because, well, he really wanted to live in California and become a movie star. All a part of his plan to run away from his unhappy home. I don't know what unhappy home means exactly. The records don't get much more specific other than his claims of not getting along with his stepmother. Even today, Almost a century later, people have a lot of questions about why he'd tell such a cold-hearted lie. In an interview, he explains his motives by simply saying, Christine was nice to me, and it's fun to be somebody you aren't. To be fair, Arthur's only 12 years old, and he may not have fully grasped the magnitude of what he'd done. But the same can't be said for the LAPD. The evidence was right in front of their face the whole time. They chose not to see it. Now, the most unfortunate part of this whole circus is, at the end of the day, it's just more time wasted. A nine-year-old boy has most likely been abducted and has been missing for almost half a year. But the police completely stopped looking for him. They've closed Walter Collins' case. And by the time they reopen it and actually identify a possible kidnapper, it's probably too late. It's September 1928. Walter Collins' 10th birthday is a few weeks away. And his mother is still clinging to hope that her son is alive. The authorities, on the other hand, seem pretty confident that he's dead. In a sense, it would be easier for them that way. They really want this case closed. But also, statistically, it's the likeliest outcome. Walter's nine years old, and he's been missing for six months. Now, they just need to find the evidence to prove it. They return to Walter's case, and just a few days before his 10th birthday, officials get a major break. Warning. I'm about to get into some pretty gruesome details, so if you want to skip ahead like 30 seconds, I totally understand. Okay, so, on September 19, 1928, officials arrest a child molester and serial killer named Gordon Stewart Northcott. For years, he's abducted, sexually assaulted, and killed underage boys. He buried their bodies with quicklime to make it harder for the police to find his victims. And he has two accomplices, 
his mother, Sarah Louise, and his nephew, Sanford. In total, the trio confesses to anywhere between 10 and 20 different homicides. The number is hard to pinpoint because after their arrest, their testimonies change so often. And changing numbers isn't the only challenge. The three of them also constantly contradict each other, which is frustrating for everyone involved. Especially because during one interview, the nephew Sanford says he killed the boy everyone's been looking for. He killed Walter Collins. Allegedly, Walter and Christine used to visit the grocery store where Northcott worked. That's how Northcott first laid eyes on him. That's how Walter became a target. Of course, Sanford isn't taking full responsibility. It couldn't possibly be that easy, right? No, Sanford insists that he killed Walter under duress. He was afraid that if he didn't, his uncle would have killed him. It's a stunning confession. The only piece of evidence to move the needle in Walter's case since his disappearance. But unfortunately, there's only so much police can do with it because Northcott never corroborates the account. He denies having any hand in Walter Collins' disappearance. He never confesses that he kidnapped Walter or that Walter ever set foot on his property. And when officials search Northcott's farm, they dig up corpses, but none that can be identified as Walter. They find clothes, toys, and Boy Scout badges at his house, but none that can be linked to Walter. Ultimately, Stewart's convicted of three homicides, none of them Walters, and sentenced to death. Now, if you know me at all, you know the last thing I want to do is give a serial killer airtime. I don't find them fascinating. They're not celebrities. And I certainly don't believe that they should be the focal point of any true crime narrative. But what's so disgusting is Northcott's actions make it nearly impossible to tell this story any other way. See, every murder, every body that the police find on his property, and all the ones they don't, are missing children. And yet, to the very end, his mind games make sure the spotlight stays on him. His lies make sure his victim stories never get the ending they deserve. In addition to taking their lives, he erases any possibility of closure. Two days before his execution, in September 1930, Christine Collins visits Northcott in prison. She asks him point blank if he had anything to do with Walter's disappearance. With a straight face, he tells her no, and Christine chooses to believe him. She tells the LA Times, I've never been satisfied that Walter is dead. To anyone close to the case, it's a surprising stance. Is Christine operating on a motherly instinct? Is it hope? Denial? When does hope turn into denial? I don't know. I don't think that's my call to make. I can say that I didn't give up hope that my sister Alyssa could be alive for almost 15 years. I don't use the word denial. I think families can be glaringly aware of these statistics while still holding out hope. Maybe I'd feel differently if we destigmatized denial so that it didn't feel so shameful. Psychologically, it can actually exist for good reasons. 
to help you process negative information at a manageable pace. But I don't know Christine. I don't know her experience. So I'm going to call it hope. And in all fairness to her, it's hard for anyone involved in the case to separate fact from fiction. Northcott spends his final days doing whatever seems most likely in the moment to help him escape justice, alternating between insisting on his innocence and offering to cooperate with the police. As his last word on the matter, Northcott claims innocence. On the day of his execution, he writes a confession saying that he committed no crimes whatsoever. He casts all the blame on his father and nephew. They are the real predators, with his father as the one who killed most of those boys. And he names Walter as one of the deceased. Now, the police, the press, and the vast majority of people who have ever studied or written about Walter Collins' case all agree. Northcott either killed Walter himself or forced his family to do it. That's what I believe happened. As for Christine, after speaking with the man who most likely murdered her son, she spends the rest of her days treading water, clinging to hope. Without any new evidence that would warrant optimism, she passes away in 1964, at the age of 75, still waiting for Walter to come home from the movies, still believing he's alive. Now, if Walter Collins did survive, if he is alive today, he'd be over 100 years old. And because there are so few records of him out there, I can't even begin to imagine what his life post-disappearance would have looked like. I don't know what his hobbies were, whether he had a lot of friends, his dreams, his goals, what he could have possibly gotten up to with only a dime in his pocket. It's what makes Walter's story so uniquely tragic. His disappearance is one of the most famous in American history, yet nobody seems to know anything about him, the person whose name is on this case. His legacy has been completely overshadowed by other people. The imposter who stole his identity, the mother who fought to be taken seriously, the police who covered it all up, the killer who took the truth to his grave. He's become a footnote in his own story. The lies and squabbles of people, even those with the best intentions, took his ending one step farther. They erased Walter Collins from history. Next episode, a so-called missing person case that's the opposite of erased from history. In 1967, when Australian Prime Minister Harold Holt steps into the Pacific Ocean, never to return, the public insists that his story isn't over yet. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. 
you can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Angela Dorgensen, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.